Well, I want to uh, direct you to go to Ezekiel chapter 18. Normally, the way that we begin a sermon here is that I read through the entirety of the text before I start preaching. I'm actually going to go through the text piecemeal this morning instead because we are going to attempt to get our first shot, if you will, at the 18th chapter of Ezekiel. So I have a secret for you. For as much as I believe in preaching, and I do believe in preaching, I believe that the Spirit moves through the reading and especially the preaching of the Word of God to build up the saints and to convert sinners. That being said, not every passage and chapter of the Bible is written so that it fits nicely into the typical format in which I and others preach. All of, that, all of what I'm trying to say to you there is that Ezekiel 18 is, is, as far as I can tell, it's meant to be preached as Ezekiel 18, not as Ezekiel 18 in five parts. It, it really is one idea that's trying to kind of, the Lord is trying to hit His people then and now with. And so I expect that given the limitations on my time and given the limitations on your attention span, that's not an insult, that's just a reality. I'd say the same about me, okay? Just given those realities, I'm going to give us an overview of this text that I believe is going to provoke questions that I'm not going to finish answering. If those questions come up for you in the coming week, I encourage you to let me know by email or by text message. And if you don't have either of those, we've got a website that you can contact us with. Write them down on your bulletin maybe so you won't forget. So with that, I'm going to do a bit of a review from, from last week. You might remember that the people in Jerusalem were repeating a proverb to each other. Uh, we read about that in verse 2. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 2. Is that not where we're starting? All right. Okay, my mistake. That's all right. And, and by the way, uh, again, usually all of the text is up on the screen. I'm going to encourage you to have your Bibles open, or in some cases your Bibles turned on uh, this morning, because not all of it's going to be up there on the screen in terms of the words, but I am going to kind of go fishing in different parts in the chapter. So you got this proverb, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and, our chil- and the children's teeth are set on edge. Okay, And the Lord actually asked them, what do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? And what I tried to help you understand last week is that that proverb is basically our dads, our, our moms and dads, if you will, messed up, sinned, and we're bearing the guilt and the brunt and the weight of their sin and what's kind of underneath it unsaid. We didn't do anything wrong, but the Lord is judging us because mom and dad messed up and there's nothing we can do about it. And then the Proverbs correction happens in verse 4. And so that one I'm sure is there. When uh, Verse 4, and the Lord tells them, like that's a wrong way to think. All souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. And the soul who sins shall die. Now, I have a couple of questions for anyone who's in here this morning who's younger than 12, okay? Now, if you're older than 12 and you want to answer it, I suppose you still can, 
but I'm particularly interested. Raise your hand if you've ever said to mom or dad, it's not fair. You've ever said that. Okay, yeah, we got one honest soul here. Yeah, go, okay. I see another hand. I see a few more. Right. It's not fair. Or how about this one? It's not my fault. Yeah? Do we have any it's not my faults in the room? Okay, all right. We got a few more of those. Yeah. Good. Indeed. Those are the typical responses we have when we're accused, especially if we know we're being accused, we're in trouble for something we actually did. There's an impulse in your flesh. And so, so all the little ones who just responded, in some sense, like, be hopeful because it's not going to get any better. Uh, that, that, that this continues to confront you as you grow up. That in the moment when you're caught, you are tempted to point somewhere else, anywhere else but yourself, this goes back to the, to the very principle I've been preaching to you for the last two weeks, that your number one problem is your sin, and your number two problem is that you believe your number one problem is something else or someone else. And what is happening in Ezekiel 18 is that an entire nation, a whole nation, is basically saying it's not fair and it's not our fault. And the most common response to that today, moms and dads, so here's where moms and dads can answer, It's not fair. Moms and dads, what's the answer to that? Life's not fair. That's right. Life's not fair. And to some extent, right, that's true. Although it might be more correct to say, life's not fair according to what I can see and based on the amount of information I have. Because what the text shows us and has repeatedly showed us in Ezekiel is that God actually is fair or more appropriately, God is just. And when we use the word just, if you're thinking just what, that's the wrong way to use it, we're saying that God is the king of justice. And so in that sense, he's, he's just. When we say God is just, we mean God always does right. And when sinners learn this about God, there are typically two responses. We either repent because we realize that we're not just, we're not good, Or we blame. And so when God says, to to summarize passages of judgment throughout the Scripture, when God basically says He will judge, that is, He will destroy everything that is poisoning, corrupting that which He loves, that's your sin and my sin, we say either, oh, that means me, or we say, that couldn't be me, I've got a really good excuse. Either my sin is someone else's fault, Or my sin is not really sin. God's kind of being unfair. And what we saw last week is that that God's own children in Jerusalem were going with those excuses. They were blaming their parents because it's really their fault that that we're like this and messed up. And they were blaming God. God's really judging us for what they did. And what the Lord is, is making clear to them is I'm dealing with you because of you not because of them. And so what Ezekiel does from this point is he begins to imagine a bunch of different situations. You can, if you look in chapter 18, you'll see, beginning at verse 5, he starts with three main kind of uh, what we might call case studies. Uh, he's thinking like a priest. So some of you who are doing our Bible reading challenge right now, a, a, few, uh, a couple of months back, I think, you were in Leviticus, right? And, and man, so at some point, it was just kind of, you, we get blurry because what's happening is a bunch of cases and what to do with them. 
right? Lots of hypothetical situations. If a guy sins in this way, or if the leprosy looks like this, or if the house has mold and it's doing this, and, it's, and so then when that happens, you do this kind of thing. You have different cases and then what to do about them. List after, or uh, time after time, lists of various situations. And Ezekiel is showing a bit of his Levitical priestly background here, and he's doing something like that. He's illustrating a principle in verse 4 that we've already seen. And again, what's the principle? The principle in verse 4 is, uh, all souls belong to God, and the soul who sins shall die. So that's, that's our principle in verse 4. Now Ezekiel's going to start to explain it. And so, if anyone had any questions about what that means, Ezekiel begins to answer them. So go to the next slide, please. Right. So he starts in verses 5 to 9 talking about a righteous man. Okay. So what I've got there is a little, little guy with a, with a red heart outline. This man avoids idolatry. He remains chaste. He loves his neighbor. So beginning in verse 5, if a man is righteous and does what is just and right, he does not eat upon the mountains, lift up eyes to the idols of the house of Israel, does not defile his neighbor's wife, approach a woman in her time of minstrel impurity, does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, commits no robbery, gives bread to the hungry. I'm going to repeat this because some of you are still linguistically way back at verse 5. So catch up, does not oppress anyone, but restores the debtor to his pledge, commits no robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, covers the naked with a garment. Notice how many of these things have to do with his neighbor. Does not lend it interest or take any profit, withholds his hand from injustice, executes true justice between man and man, walks in my statutes, keeps my rules by acting faithfully. He is righteous he shall surely live, declares the Lord God. So this, this righteous man avoids idolatry, remains chaste, loves his neighbor, and, and the Lord's conclusion is he will surely live. And, and in Hebrew, there's no way to do like to select bold or italics to emphasize something. And so that's why what the English translates, he shall surely live. Hebrew, literally, it's in living, he will live, okay? So he will live, live. He will really live, okay? It's the way of emphasizing the point. Then you have a second example, okay? So we have a righteous man, but then we have a violent son. And this guy is not like his father. Now, remember the the proverb that they were using as their excuse. He embraces idols, rejects chastity, rejects purity. He oppresses and robs his neighbor, so we learned about this, this guy. He's violent, shedding blood, uh, eats upon the mountains, a way of speaking of uh, idolatry, uh, defiles his neighbor's wife, oppresses the poor and needy, commits robbery, does not restore a pledge, lifting up his eyes to the idol, committing abomination, and so on. He will not live. He's done all these abominations. In dying, he will die. Okay? He will die, die. He will surely die. His blood shall be upon himself. All right. So, so what the Lord is doing is he's, he's breaking down these barriers to say, I know you think that you can simply blame your parents for your condition. But in fact, I'm dealing with you, each of you, based on what you do. Go to the next one, please. So then we get the repentant grandson, third generation. He sees his father's sinfulness and turns in the other direction. Okay? 
Suppose this man fathers a son who sees all the sins his father has done. He sees and does not do likewise. And we go through the same list again. Walking in the Lord's statutes, he will not die for, the, for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. Okay? Now, Israel's response to this is really interesting. The Lord, speaking as Israel, go ahead, says in verse 19, He says, yet you say, why should not the son suffer for the iniquity of the father? So in other words, we're really convinced that it works this way. Their proverb, their their kind of way of understanding life is under threat. And if you want to see people really squirm, then put their way of understanding their world under threat. What do you mean the son won't suffer for the father's sins? The Lord tells them, That because this grandson has been careful to walk, not in the ways of his dad, but in the ways of his granddad, he will live. Now, what's interesting to me as I uh, prepared for the sermon was how often it came up that a commentator felt necessary to address this this wrong idea that, that suddenly in Ezekiel we have like the birth of individualism. Okay, That up until now the Bible's been all about community, and, and covenantal union and, and all these things. And now suddenly, out of nowhere seemingly, we get, I'm going to deal with individuals. And I'm just, so I'll just take just a minute to say absolute nonsense, okay? So if, if somebody were to ask, is the Bible, uh, does the Bible identify human beings as, as simply members of a community or as individuals? The answer is yes, because that is what it means to be in the covenantal community of God that we are individuals accountable for our sin, and at the same time, we are part of a community and identified as such. I mean, it's it's just, just to summarize it for you, I mean, to say that suddenly God comes up with the idea of individuals at this point in Scripture, I would want to say, have you ever heard of a guy named Noah? Right? Seems like the Lord was dealing with him pretty directly. Have you ever heard of Moses or Joshua? And even throughout Ezekiel, That doesn't mean God is exclusively about individuals. What what has God been doing throughout the book? Addressing the nation. Go to the house of Israel and say, this is what all of you, all y'all, to use southern talk, are guilty of. But the fact is that on the last day, individual men and women face God. And that is given special illumination here, that God deals with individuals according to their sins. All right, go to the next one, please. Yeah, and so we have, we have essentially the death of a lying Proverbs. That proverb back in verse 2 is now, it's just been set on fire by the Lord, so to speak. And the Lord tells them, God sees each man's righteousness. God sees each man's wickedness. Okay? And so uh, I'm going to read to you verse 20. The soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. And at this point in the text, verse 21, there's a shift. And you might say the doors of mercy begin to open up, because now you've got the Lord saying, no, you are guilty because you are guilty. Not to put too fine a point on it, And so what that does, as the law of God often does, by the way, is it drives us to the end of ourselves to say, well, then what do we do? I don't feel any more hopeful, 
right? I, I felt like I could excuse my sin. Now you're telling me I can't even do that? So what do I do with my sin? And so the Lord tells them, beginning in verse 21, But if a wicked person turns away from his sins that he's committed, keeps my statutes, does what is just and right, he shall surely live, he shall not die. None of the transgressions that he's committed shall be remembered against him. For the righteousness that he's done, he shall live. And so you have this wicked man, go to the next one please, who turns and repents. And the Lord says, he will live because I'm going to forget about his sins. Notice that there, is, there are these two elements, what the Lord determines to do with this man and what the man is doing. And I'm, I'm going to get to this point later in the sermon, but it's, it's pressing in on me. I, I can feel it so much that I just, I'm going to address it briefly now and we'll get to more of it later. That maybe as you're reading this, you're like, man, this sounds a lot like salvation by works. And we're going to talk more about that a bit later in the sermon. But I'm going to give you a kind of cheat code to understand a lot of the occurrences of these things in the Scripture. Just, just for starters, God cares about how we live. He calls us to righteous living. At the same time, if you're ever reading the word, if the word righteous pops up, in, especially in the Old Testament, but in times in the New Testament as well, and it, because your flesh is tuned to head toward works righteousness, you start moving in that direction, just as a spiritual exercise, substitute the word righteous for justified. And I bet it'll start making some more sense to you. That doesn't, that doesn't remove the element of righteous living. We're going to get there in just a moment too. Now, we have this wicked person who turns and repents. The Lord says, I'm going to forget his sins. Why? What's the reason? Because God has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Now that is, I mean, we, we maybe move over that too quickly. Because maybe you've heard that verse before and it makes sense to you, right? Because God is love, and so obviously he doesn't get like real charged up and excited when somebody dies. But really see what's happening there is that the Lord is saying, I know that's what you think of me, right? That, that I am this unjust, unfair king in the sky who delights in your misery. And that blasphemy doesn't exactly send you running to the Lord for your comfort and forgiveness, does it? And so a lot of people stay locked in their misery and their sin because they see God, so to speak, as one who is simply, perpetually, unavoidably, unalterably angry at them. That's why the Lord says, if the wicked man turns, I'm going to forget about his sins. Something that largely is, as human beings, we're just incapable of doing, right? It's really hard to live as though, I can't even say it, it's really hard to live as though you've forgotten someone's sins against you. And, and here the Lord gives that kind of promise about what He's going to do. So that's, ex, that's the, the first example here of this principle being applied. The next one is a righteous person that turns to wickedness. Okay? And we have a word for this, theologically, we call it apostasy. Um, it's been given a bunch of names since then, um, but, but apostasy is a biblical term, that if you were part of the Christian faith by profession, by your words, and then later you're not part of the Christian faith, we call that apostasy. And so the righteous man who turns away, 
His righteous deeds will be forgotten. Wait a minute. Right? Even the good that he did in the body, whatever he did for his neighbor, will be forgotten. And so you see what's being quickly ushered out the door, so to speak, is any idea that life is about balancing your scales. And as long as you basically have 51% good to balance out your 49% bad at the end, you're going to be okay. And, and what the Lord says here is, it is not really what you have done, but how you are found. In what state the Lord finds you. Right? And so the conclusion is, the Lord says, I am just. I am righteous. I am the one who has measured these things fairly. Verse 25, Yet you say the way of the Lord is not just. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not just? It is, is it not your ways that are not? And, and if you have any trouble trying to figure out what he's talking about, think back to earlier when he, when he explains what the way of the righteous man looks like, which, by the way, is basically a, a summary of, of a lot of the content of the Ten Commandments. Not, not all of it, but, pretty, I mean, but the great majority of it. And so, what is the command? The command is to repent, if you look at verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways. Repent and turn from your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. In other words, turn away from your sin. Cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed. The command is to repent. And we are given a sense of what that means in verse 21. If a wicked person turns away from all his sins he has committed and keeps all my statutes and does what is right, he will surely live. Right? In living, he will live. He will not die. And so repentance is a matter of turning away from sin and to God, both of those parts of it being really necessary. They must go together. So, so think about those two things with me for a moment, if you will. Turning from sin, away from sin, and to God and to His, to his promises and to His ways. If you only do the first, right? recognize my sin, you are going to become a slave to your shame. Right? Because you'll see your sin. You'll be like, yes, that's me. I'm a wretch. I'm a worm. I'm worthless. It's never going to get any better. Right? And, and, and there are people who get a good look at their sin and never look anywhere else. And they're absolutely driven to misery over it. And in a way, I think it's a really twisted way that your flesh gets at you because you almost feel righteous for all this sorrow you're enduring. It's, it's still a way that your flesh tries to, to earn your way if you only follow the second, though, if you, if, you don't, uh, if you don't turn away from your sin, if you keep on sinning, but turn to God, that is, live a life that's covered by religion, including religious words and practices and songs and Facebook posts or whatever, it's still not repentance. And at that point, you're enslaved to your own lies about what it means to know God. And so God demands our repentance. Do you know why? Do you know why God demands repentance? The answer is because He doesn't want us to die in our sins. That's what the text says. What's so interesting to me, though, is, is that throughout the text, flatly states, the righteous man shall live, the wicked man shall die. If you don't believe me, look at chapter 18. That's what he says in a few different places. What does that mean exactly? What does it mean that the wicked man shall die, okay? Does that mean that God's going to like, in Jerusalem, commission an executioner 
That guy's going to go find all the wicked and chop their heads off or something. Or does it mean that in the grand scheme of things, the Lord will see to it that the, wicked's, the wicked man's actions lead to a dead end in terms of life? Or is this spiritual language, speaking of eternal resurrected life in the new heavens and the new earth, and eternal resurrected life in hell? The answer is it doesn't say. <laughs> we're not really told. All we're given is this connection between righteousness and life, Right? Righteous man will live. And between wickedness and death. And then God saying, I don't desire the death of the wicked. And then at the end of the chapter, I don't desire the death of anyone. Now, for many of you, when you hear that, you've got, I don't desire the death of anyone. Or, or I don't desire the death of the wicked man. Wicked man shall die. Seems like a contradiction at first. So the wicked man shall die, but I don't desire the death of the wicked. Now, the contradiction is resolved when you realize that what the Lord is doing here in speaking through Ezekiel, he's, he's equating righteousness with life, wickedness with death. Think about those two just kind of joined together. In other words, sin, wickedness, doesn't simply cause death. It is a kind of death even if you're still alive. And so when the Lord calls on us to repent, and He's saying, turn away from that which is killing you, slowly. That's, that's what the Lord's calling His people to. It's what He's calling us to as well. And, and <clears throat> what this text has reminded me of is that sometimes it, it is possible to speak of grace and mercy and forgiveness and salvation in such a way that you kind of leave out any kind of call to obedience. And so here's something we need to understand. Okay, Sanctification, that is your, your growth in grace as a Christian, is more than just being really excited about your justification. Okay, Sanctification is more than being really charged up and excited about your justification, your salvation, that your sins are forgiven. It's not less than that, to be sure. It, I mean, that's part of, of what drives us in here, part of what drives us to the table. Right? We're celebrating what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Yes and amen. And at the same time, we are given this call to obedience. It's actually in the Great Commission. Right? The Great Commission is to put God's promise of forgiveness on people with water in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and also to teach them everything that Jesus commanded. Those two go together. And it's always been a temptation for Christians to get people to believe and then, but then maybe to stop caring about how they live. So long as we get them to say they believe, it really doesn't matter how they live. It doesn't matter if they pray. It doesn't matter if they ever speak to their neighbors. It doesn't matter if they're never in fellowship. It doesn't matter if they're secretly addicted to alcohol or to pornography or just to their screens. It doesn't matter if they're in submission to no one but themselves. It doesn't matter if they ever receive the Lord's Supper. It doesn't matter if they're baptized. I've actually heard that one. And here's the Lord Almighty in Ezekiel saying, 
Good morning, we clearly haven't met. I am the covenant Lord who commands you to live and not to descend into death while wearing religious garb. You see, we have to be careful here because there are some pretty important distinctions that are in play. And part of this is, um, part of the reason why we struggle with this is because of a, uh, what to call it, a movement, a belief system called pietism. Pietism is, is, as far as I can tell, best identified as the teaching that whatever happens outside of me doesn't matter as long as my insides are okay. Okay? So pietism teaches when you come to Christianity, all that matters is what's going on on your insides. Never mind whatever happens on your outsides. That's secondary and irrelevant. I mean, nice, nice if you've got it, but, you know, insides is what we're really all about. And I would just say, if, if, if those kind of pietistic tendencies are, are at influence in you, just read Ezekiel 18 out loud this afternoon and then try to say that with a straight face, that the Lord doesn't care about the external actions. You will find that nowhere in the Bible. What, the, what scriptures often do is they speak of God's external gifts and His external calling on our lives with more importance than we would dare allow. And it makes us uncomfortable. So, so yes, you must believe. Don't misunderstand me. Yes, you must believe. If you do not believe, all of this is worthless. And, and don't forget, Ezekiel 18, God is speaking to people who are in covenant with Him. Right? At no point, interestingly enough, at no point has the Lord charged them with atheism. He's charged them with idolatry. So, so you know, Yahweh is still there, but we got a bunch of others too. But he's never, he's never accused them or charged them with atheism. And so they could give verbal assent to a lot of doctrines of, let's call it Yahwehism, right? But the problem was, was that they were living like atheists, like God doesn't exist. And, and God is calling them then to walk in obedience. Why? Because disobedience will murder you, beloved. It'll start with your soul and then it'll eventually work its way into your body. It will murder you and God does not delight in your death. So how much does the Lord desire obedience in you and a change of life? So much so, this is amazing. He dares to use language at the end of this chapter that will shock you, especially if you've been a Presbyterian for any amount of time. What does he say uh, here in verse 30 and 31? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgress transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. Why will you die, O house of Israel? Make yourselves. Wait a minute. There goes our entire Reformed theology, right? Oh, man. It's been, we've had a good run, guys. Now, immediately, I, I'm going to say we, we want to examine what is being communicated here. If you go to the next one, please. This word that's translated make in the ESV is kind of a tricky one. In the ESV, it's got make yourselves a new heart. New King James, get yourselves a new heart. New living, find yourselves. What is going on there? Well, as you can see, the word has what we call a range of meaning. The idea, and so 
English, again, we don't have a precise word for this in English. That's why you see various translations have gone with various possibilities. The idea is almost like that of uh, engage yourself in the use of this thing like it's supposed to be used. So when this word refers to something that needs to be built, it's make. When the word is used in reference to gardening or to plants, it's grow or cultivate. When it's used in the context of looking for something, it's find. So, and, and, and the word shows up in different places in the Bible and it's handled in those ways. So what do we do with that? Well, the responsible thing to do with biblical texts is to allow them to be interpreted by other biblical texts. And so, just in the case of Ezekiel, what we should ask of this verse is, now where have we heard this language before? And the answer is back in chapter 11. Verse 19, where the Lord makes the first promise of this kind. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Translation, God's already promised I will give you. Now he's saying, come and get it. Okay, He's already promised I will give you. Now he's saying, come and get it. Now why speak this way? Because the Lord knows something about you, and that's that you're really good at self-deception. Okay? You're really good at it. I'm not, but you are. Okay? <laughs> self-deception. And, and how easily we start to tell ourselves, well, you know, I've, you know, I've done a little bit of theology, election, right? Predestination. It means God's got everything solved and figured out, so I just need to sit around and wait for God to hit me with a salvation thunderbolt, because, you know, predestination. Nothing I can do about it. Absolutely nothing I can do. Kind of like, oh, my parents ate these sour grapes, and the taste is in my mouth. Nothing I can do about it. Nothing we can do. And the Lord says, I don't desire the death of the wicked. Repent now. Now, it's perhaps a cliche to say this, But it still remains true that nothing keeps people outside of the church like the behavior of some of those inside the church. Maybe you've heard that before. And there are many, as much as it grieves us to admit, there are many who have had a short-term faith, a, a semblance of faith that they've turned away from just like we see in Ezekiel talking about this, this move from righteous to wickedness. And their excuse is, well, bad Christians, bad Christians, mean, mean Christians. Those nasty Christians ate a bunch of sour grapes around me and I can't get the taste out of my mouth. And to you, the Lord God says, the soul that sins will die. So deal with that yourself between you and the Lord. On the last day, and so I'm not, I'm not denying that sometimes Christians hurt people and the end result is in terms of the course of life, they cut themselves off from faith. It does happen. But on the last day, what another person did will not be the measure of your judgment. There are others who have falsely believed that simply just by talking about Jesus and occasionally maybe asking for forgiveness, that makes them righteous. It doesn't. 
Being a Christian means following Jesus. The difference between the righteous man and the wicked man is that, again, it's interestingly enough, in this text, it's not that like one believes in God and the other doesn't. Isn't it amazing that their position on the existence of God is never mentioned in this? That is because one of them has a godly life that's visible. The other one has sins that are hidden. Or at least he's trying to hide them. Some of them spill out into and they hit his neighbors, whether he means for them to or not. And so the difference between the wicked man and righteous man here in this text is not that one believes in God and the other doesn't. The difference is that one of them has a godly life that's visible and the other one has sins that are hidden, perhaps even hidden from himself. The wicked man, what we see in the text, he's unmoved by two things. One, the burdens of his neighbor, that his neighbor is hurting, that he's the one hurting him and that he doesn't care. And then number two, the fact that his immorality has real consequences for other people. Repentance then, after the cross, under the new covenant age, means turning to Christ. And we believe and confess that that means that turning to Christ means that He gives you His righteousness as a gift. Now that's what we're given in the new covenant. Not simply a picture of a righteous man who we seek to imitate, but the righteousness of the God-man who is transforming us more and more into His image. What is so interesting in our text this morning is that God never, ever once commands people to earn their righteousness. He simply talks about how righteous people live. He calls them righteous. God calls them righteous like it's their name or something. And then He describes how they live. Now that is our calling. We are not called to earn our righteousness. We are called... We are commanded to imitate the one who has saved us. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Your righteousness then is a past tense reality. And every day, when you get out of bed, the Lord Jesus calls you again to faith and repentance. He says here, is all I've given you, so come and get it. Right? Come and get it. And if you wonder, if you wonder, man, it's that getting up in the morning, like where does one get the spiritual strength, the supernatural ability, the, the, the spiritual weapons of warfare to fight this fight of faith? God Almighty invites you in and says, here are my gifts, come and get them. That's why the early church called the sacrament of the Lord's Supper spiritual food or the food even of eternal life so that we would never forget that both our outsides and our insides both matter. And God distributes His gifts to both. He takes the most ordinary thing imaginable, right? Ordinary food and drink. And He says, my food, me, to you, to you, to strengthen your faith, to shore up your confidence, to comfort your troubled soul, to feed you with grace and faith. How much? Oh, enough to love wicked men and to dare to hope that they become righteous by the blood and cross of Jesus. 
And so this call is given to you, to me, and to us, to invite us and indeed to compel us and the world to come in, to get new hearts and to get new spirits. For God says, I will give it to you, so now come and get it. Come and get the forgiveness and the righteousness and the strength and the comfort and the hope of Jesus Christ. Come and get it. Now, do you still feel like there are questions in the text that I left unanswered? If so, write them down. Because I think, I have the sense there's a lot more to say here that I just couldn't get to. But I do want to continue to unpack this. I think it's important. All right? So we're going to talk more next Sunday about what it means to walk in righteousness but not in works righteousness, which is always this kind of tension that we live in. But Christ has given us this hope. He's called us to, yes, to righteous living, to love our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, to love our neighbors as ourselves, to love even our enemies. And we say, how do we do that? Where do we get the power to do that? And the Lord says, it's right here. Come and get it. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our Father, thank you that you've given us all that we need for life and godliness. And we pray that you would steady us and strengthen us here at this table. That we would be so quick to repent of our wickedness. That we might again hear the forgiving voice of Jesus and walk with him. Lord, I, I pray for those, who are, who, for those who are rejecting you. That you would help them. Give them the grace to repent of sin. Call them in, repent, and turn away from all your transgressions, lest iniquity be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions. So Lord, we pray for that for our own hearts, that you'd help us to be set up as as watchmen over our own hearts. Give us the grace to believe that our biggest problem is our sin, and that our second biggest problem is that we don't believe that. And so help us in this, we pray, for the sake of our Lord Jesus and his gospel to this world. Amen.